Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This isn't a Disney film. We're not supposed to just be like, you know, dancing and gliding through life. Hello and welcome back to Beautiful Lives, the podcast in which I, Madeline Spencer, invite a guest to join me to talk about their life and to explore the relationship they've had with their appearance along the way. It's been so nice to be back releasing episodes and working on new ones. And I have to say one of the best things about making this podcast is talking to so many brilliant people. Last week, you heard my chat with Lisa Eldridge. Coming up, I'll be joined by Alicia Silverstone. And today's guest is the author, artist and speaker, Giselle Lapomp moore Now, Giselle and I first met while working at Stylist years ago, and I just always loved her. She's got this wonderful vibe. She dresses in this beautiful way, and she's just someone who's calm and centered and kind and now she's turned that into this exceptional career of teaching people and demonstrating how to avoid the usual culture of hustling and pushing through life and in fact she advocates the opposite she likes intuition and finding your own path and being who you are authentically and it's just the most wonderful thing to learn and see through Giselle. In this episode, Giselle and I track her life and career and how she guided herself to find a calling and a life that served her. Also, and this is so important for you to know about her approach, we talk about how spirituality is something one and all can have access to. It's not elitist. It doesn't mean you have to buy crystals or any other equipment. And there are no barriers to entry. I should tell you now that there's a meditation at the end. So if you want to take part in that, do find somewhere comfy and warm to sit and let yourself be cocooned in Giselle's guided meditation in her lovely, gentle voice. I'm delighted that this episode is once more powered by the modern British skincare brand Amly, and I couldn't be more enthusiastic about their products. I've actually just been spritzing the digital detox mist all around me as a little sensorial moment of calm at my desk. But I'll be back later in the episode to tell you more about them. For now, here's Giselle. Hi Giselle, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm so pleased you can make the time to do this. And I love the way that you think about life. And every time I think, actually, I do this quite a lot, Giselle, quite genuinely, I think <laughs> about the way that you face things with such grace. And like, this is through your book, Take It In. This is through your Instagram. This is just the way that you feel that being present, honoring yourself, listening to yourself is a way to maybe not find joy, but be content in life. Mm. Is that, is that a fair summary? Yeah, for sure. And I think that word content rings really true for me compared to this abundance of emotion and joy and happiness. And I almost quite consider the way that I show up to life in a way that I share with people as one of just like making a very messy, complex, nonsensical world a little easier to live in. And I think when we end up in that self-optimization mode of like trying to be these optimized almost robotic, green-juicing, Pilates-doing people, we just add on more pressure to that. Absolutely. But you did say in that how you show up to life. And I wonder, 
this, I want to say burden of self. So if you have a bad day, is it because you didn't show up right? Is it because you didn't do it right? Or is that just life? A hundred percent just life. And I think, you know, a lot of this work in this space is about pushing into positivity and like pretending the bad days don't exist. And for me, showing up is showing up for like the really shit times and being present with them is saying it's a condition of being human is feeling everything. I think I said this in one of the chapters in the book, we didn't sign a feel good contract when we were born. Right. And I think we have this assumption that, well, if I'm not happy, then I must have done something wrong. I must not have done like all my practices. I must be a bad person. And it's like, well, how else can you feel joy and love and peace unless you've just been through absolute hell? Um, I think it gives us great perspective to understand the blessings that we have in life and we've just been through it. So I'm an advocate for just feeling it. There's nothing wrong with feeling things. You know, this isn't a Disney film. We're not supposed to just be like, you know, dancing and gliding through life. Giselle, I'd like to go back to your childhood I first met you when we were actually both at Stylist. There was a strong aesthetic that you adhered to. I always saw you out the corner of my eye wearing beautiful dresses, usually nipped in waists, eyelashes, and beautiful glossy hair. And, you know, you inhabited that and you enjoyed that. When you were younger, very young, was there someone whose aesthetic affected you and made you want to dress like that? I think as I was growing up, I was all, I used to love watching Sound of Music as my favorite film. And I always just loved fashion history. So I felt really at home watching, you know, films or outtakes or books, you know, with like Christian Dior in like the 40s and 50s. And that's where I felt at home. And I think also, you know, growing up and I think having a body type that didn't fit in with, you know, trends helped that as well because you know I'd go to Topshop and try and fit into skinny jeans and it just wasn't working out for me and then I just had this moment of like maybe I'm not supposed to wear that if I can try something that actually works with my body type then how amazing would that be but even younger than that I think I was just really transfixed by the idea of using glamour as a form of escapism but also as a way for deep introspection so I think in some ways my aesthetic both allowed me to fantasize and dream about this time um, when I was going through really painful things. But at the same time, it allowed me to really say like, you know, in a society that wants us to look and dress a certain way, I don't have to do that. And with that sense of self that seems to run through absolutely everything you do, that sense of maybe I can do this another way and make it better. Um, did you have any other examples of that in your childhood when you were young? Were you someone who was a bit of a fantasist or, or maybe fantasist is, is, is not a word that you enjoy, but, you know, were you someone who lived in the imagination space? For sure. Like I think um, I was saying to my, myself, as only children do, I was saying to myself the other day that only children were like the originators of main character energy. And I really believe that. I feel like when I was younger, I really believed that, you know, the world was was mine and yeah. everyone else were like these like non-playable characters. So I spent a lot of time in my imagination and I'm thrilled that I did because I think it shaped my creativity. It shaped my writing skills. It's also shaped how I see the world and seeing the world as one of just like pure curiosity and amazement constantly. Mm -hmm. And I think that sense of imagination asked, made me ask questions. So I was constantly wondering like, why do I have an arm? And nobody was asking those questions when we were like six years old, but I was really curious. 
And I would look in the mirror sometimes and be like, wow, like I'm just like an actual human being. Like how crazy is that? So I never took anything for granted. I was always like, why am I here? Why are we all here? It's pretty crazy that we're here. In the world away from your imagination, what did your life look like when you were, let's say, five? Mm. I think when it's interesting because, you know, since part of my healing journey and I guess the reason for this work wasn't wasn't to be in, you know, that thriving, joyful, living my best life mode. It was simply survival. Um, and part of that healing journey was realizing I did I have very little memory of my childhood. And that's something that I really struggled with for a long time. I think when you've had a life that's been inflected or punctuated by moments of pain or trauma, it's easy to forget the moments of joy in between them. Um, your brain almost like wants to consume all of the bad stuff. Um, so it gives little attention to the good stuff. But I think when I was around that age, I was just a happy child. And I was looking at some pictures the other day and just finding these little quirks in my personality. So I always had this really weird thing I did when I was really younger. And I had, um, I used to carry like this wicker basket handbag, just filled with Fox's mints. Like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz sort of thing. Yeah, just, but mints are such a weird sweet for a five-year-old. And I just had these like bags of like sweets that I just give out to people. Um, so I think I still just had this like very quirky personality. And I think I was very forthright in what I wanted to do in life, which was a trait that I guess I've just carried on living in. Yeah. Um, your mum nearly died at eight. What happened there? She had a hysterectomy. And I think it's really interesting how we can frame, you know, women's health, you know, to when we were growing up and how much, you know, change there's been. And I remember very vividly, one of my strongest memories in my life was when she left for hospital and she was like, I'll be back home in a week. It's a very routine operation. And when she had the hysterectomy, we just got a phone call. And it's one of those, you know, very TV moment phone calls when your life just instantly changes. And during that phone call, they said, you know, she's now in ICU. She's lost a ton of blood. The surgery went really wrong. You know, when you're eight years old, you don't have any kind of concept of what wrong is. I just knew that my mum wasn't there. And, you know, she was in there for three months. I think it's interesting the pieces of pain that we keep holding on to years later, right? So it wasn't the fact, you know, that my mum was gone for three months. It was the fact that I was too scared to see her in hospital. That caused me a huge amount of pain. Um, so I had lots of, you know, memories of seeing her and just running out of hospital rooms saying, you know, that's not my mom. She had all these tubes and it's like very much like Holby City in there. And I was terrified and I had to, to live with that and move through that pain of I couldn't, I wasn't strong enough. And I think that's kind of been this theme through most of my life is one of having to be resilient and at the same time believing that I wasn't resilient enough. That also happened to you at 15 when two fairly big things happened, right? Mm. It's interesting, right, when we when we go back into our our timelines and we realise, you know, there were so many moments which collided at the same time. Um, so, yeah, I think the first thing when I was like 14, 15 was when my mum and my dad broke up. And I wasn't close to my dad. I always, you know, jokingly <laughs> refer to him as this man who lived in my house. But he performed, you know, the functional roles of fatherhood, which was, you know, teach me how to ride a bike and pick me up from school. And when they um, said they were going, they were breaking up, I was just really hit with this grief of, oh, I can't lose another parent. So while my mum, you know, so luckily survived what she went through, I was still really hit with, you know, I'm an only child here. I can't afford to like not have a dad and have a mum who's disabled. And 
wasn't doing very well. So that was like a huge knock for me. And I think that alone, you know, affected so much with, you know, how I approach relationships and how I shop with men. And then around the same time, again, linked and rooted in that relationship with men was when I was raped when I was 15. And it's an interesting one for me because I don't even mark 15 as this big moment when that really traumatic thing happened. Because I didn't really, I didn't understand or realize that I was raped until I was until just before the pandemic, because obviously 2020 was the year when everything, everything happened. Mm. I was, you know, just on a retreat and we were doing a meditation practice and that came up and I've done work with, you know, United Nations. I've done lots of work in this space with gender equality and sexual violence. And even still, I had to go and check the Met Police website and read the definition of rape to fully understand that's what happened to me. And it's mind-blowing, right? And I think it's proof of that book, you know, The Body Keeps Score, mm-hmm. that your body just tucks stuff in that's too painful to conceive until your body feels able to handle it. Do you also think that there's, um, in my experience anyway, there's, there'll be like a touchstone trauma, like your mum being poorly when you were eight, and that sort of sets you up in this way of going, okay, I can't cope, or well, I can cope, but emotionally I'm struggling. And somehow you kind of find a way through it. And then if you haven't gone back and looked at that, then you sort of stay in that mode when other things happen. Absolutely. I think it is, you know, this, you're just almost in this like constant perpetual state of fight or flight without really understanding why you're in that. So I was always anxious, you know, when I was growing up and I had no idea why I was anxious. I had no idea why I would, you know, grab keys in my bag when I was walking home from at night. I had no idea why I struggled when people left. And it's only sometimes you said when you go back and you're like, oh, obviously. And it's sometimes those aha moments in um, a self-inquiry journey that is the most beautiful. Mm. Well, of course, I found life difficult because these really big things happened. And I don't think, sadly, in our society, mm. we're really trained to have that level of introspection because, yeah, it's painful to look at. How did you end up then doing the job that you did? Yeah, so I think probably one of those like um, turning point moments was when I was around 15 and I found this book on the law of attraction or like manifesting. And it was the first time in my life that I realized I might have some agency. Um, So bearing in mind, you know, before this point, things just happened to me. People left or I was hurt. So things happened. And when things happen to you, you do think, well, I'll just, I'll just be on this ride. I'll just see what happens next. And when I read this book, I was like, hang on a second. So I could potentially make some stuff happen myself. And it was completely life-changing. And, you know, especially because I didn't, I mean, obviously manifesting is a huge thing that's in our society right now. And we speak about it a lot. So most people's first, you know, steps into that have happened in the last couple of years. But for me at 15, I didn't have, you know, I wasn't on the internet trying to work out what it was about. I just read this book and believed it. And I was grateful that I learned when I did because I just went into it. I didn't have any doubts. I wasn't checking, you know, the science around it. I just was like, well, I've got nothing to lose. And, you know, much to my amazement, it, it worked. And even if it wasn't these like specific things, it just was more just like this perspective shift that I can do anything. And I always say that, you know, we have so many different intersections in society. So just simply the belief that me as a black girl in East London, one of the highest rates of poverty in the UK, single mum, could do or be anything, that to me is the proof that it works. 
So am I the prime minister right now? I wouldn't want to be, but no. <laughs> but did I have that belief that I could when I was living in a place where I didn't believe that I could do that? Then like, yeah, for me, that's a huge life-changing moment. And I think from there, it just gave me the confidence to, you know, apply for really good schools. It gave me the confidence to say no to, I was in like the gift and talented class, only child energy again. <laughs> and um, my teacher like, you know, you should apply to like Oxford or Cambridge, like you've got the grace to do that. I was like, yeah, but that just doesn't light me up. I think I just want to be a fashion writer. And I like, remember my teacher, the teachers, my, the look on my teacher's face, and I was like, why would you do that? And I was like, well, I just want to write catwalk reports. And I went to LCF and did exactly that. And I think I would have never have had that confidence to say no had I not had those practices. Do you think that if everyone did a version of a practice that connected them to themselves, that they would also have that conviction? A hundred percent, because it wasn't only in, you know, those obvious things like career and manifesting things. Um, it was just in my ability to choose myself and be myself. I don't drink alcohol and I've never been drunk before, which blows so many people's mind, which is quite funny. Sorry. Yeah, that's, that's slightly blown my mind. Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever drunk any alcohol? Yes. Like I've tried little bits and pieces, like I'll happily dilute like... Okay you know, five mils of Baileys and some coconut milk or something. But like I've had little bits of things. But I remember when I was 15 and everyone else was drinking around me and bearing in mind I was in a lot of pain. Mm. Drinking would have made a lot of sense for me to escape from. And I remember very vividly because of those practices just saying, yeah, I'm a no. And I would be at bus stops with people in like um, my neighborhood and everyone was drinking like Lambrusco, like WKD Blue. Nice. And like, you know, the peer pressure, right? I'm just like yeah, I just, I'm just not having any. And even still now, you know, friends will say to me, like, how can I say no this like, you know, beauty event to having champagne? I don't want to drink tonight. I'm just like, just say no. And I realize, and I take it for granted that when you've always lived your life that way, it does feel a bit easier. And I think I had that knowing since I was that young, but they're not living in my choice. Mm. So they're not going to, the people who, you know, are forcing or ask me to do all these things, they're not going to be here the next day if I have a hangover. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be here if I choose a job I don't want to be in. They don't have to pull that shift for me. Mm-hmm. So I have to live with my choice. So why would I choose a life according to other people? I want to return to the ease thing that I've mentioned, I think, a few times so far. With ambition, with work, there's very often the sense of you have to bang on every door, you know, And eventually one will open. You keep going, you push, 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 push. You work yourself to the point where you can't work anymore, et cetera. You make it sound like, and I'm not sure what the exact moments were, but you make it sound as if you decided to let a reality in and it came to you to some extent. Now, I know that working in magazines is is fiercely competitive. So I wonder how you balance those two things. I wasn't in balance. I think, you know, there's my career is almost in these two halves. I spent a decade in an industry where I pushed myself to, you know, severe anxiety. I would have anxiety attacks that would last for six to eight hours. I wasn't eating properly. I never moved my body. I was in burnout mode. And sometimes you have to get to that place to realize, I don't think this is why we're here. Um, And I felt like I had to push because, you know, I, in every job I've had, I've probably been the only one or two of women of color in an office. And what that does to you is it makes you feel like you have to work harder than everyone else has to. 
And I did that. I pushed really hard. And there's something that my friend and my then boss at Stylist, Joanna Elna, said to me. And I was doing the Beauty Awards at Stylist and I was in the basement, you know, till like 8, 9 p.m. I should have just asked for an assistant, but I was like, no, I can do this myself. And I remember she said to me, she's like, no one's here to see you working that hard and no one's going to thank you for it. So she was like, you need to leave at six. You know, your job is to leave. And she's like, of course, you know, everyone, you know, we sometimes spend an extra 10 minutes, 20 minutes at work and we have deadlines, but she was like, no one's going to see you in there. So when you then do try and ask for an assistant, which I did the year later, and you're like, you get lots of no's, it's because you've proved that you can do the job by yourself, right? And I always said to her, like, you know, that's, that, that piece of advice changed how I saw work and productivity. Because who was I working that hard for? For people who were not going to thank me for it, right? Or who weren't going to say, you know, great job, Giselle. Like, yeah, you did the job. And it was my choice to stay there. And I kept pushing. And when I had that moment of change on my very last job before I started doing the work that I do now, I was just like, what is this for? Because I get a paycheck, sure, but then I use that paycheck to escape from the hell of my own making. So there was not really many benefits for me doing this work. It wasn't filling me with joy anymore. And I just thought to myself, you know, I know that I've had to do jobs just to survive. But when I hit a certain point in my career, it wasn't just about survival anymore. I had the freedom and the privilege to say, I'm just not going to do that. We're going to go into Take It In in a moment. But before that, I just want to really drill into beauty stuff because, like I said, the incredible glamour, the sort of 1940s, 50s energy that you project is is amazing. And I'd love to know what you love to use um, after working in that realm. So I feel like I spend most of my life advocating for Lashify. I honestly, there has never been a beauty launch that has literally spoken to my soul more than this brand and I'm sure people think that I'm some kind of like ambassador like I'm really not like I spend a lot of money (laughs) on these products but um so basically lash of five people who don't know is this system where you it's like kind of like you know being your own lash tech so you're applying lashes but to the under lash versus you know applying your strips on top you know it takes some patience it takes a bit of learning but when you do do them you know they last for about five to seven days potentially And I've always been enamored by eyelashes for a really long time. I think I started wearing them every day when I was about 21. So yeah, I've been on an 11-year journey with my eyelashes. And there's just something about them. I love the almost like mindful meditative practice of applying something with precise detail. It feels like a really great, beautiful time just to connect and be with myself and to just float away for a moment. So I think there is like a connection between that and just how it looks. But I think to be honest, you know, the the old Hollywood aesthetic that I've always been captivated by is just one of care. When I was writing my book, I interviewed um, lots of my aunts in Trinidad and they spoke so beautifully about my great grandmother who I didn't get to meet. She died a couple of months before I was born. And, you know, she was living in Trinidad and she did lots of, you know, healing practices, which I'm sure we'll speak about in a moment. But what I loved about the stories about her was, you know, we were living in, you know, my family lived in the, in the depths of poverty. They were making their own food and they didn't have money to live on. And she had like 10 kids. And she always had a new wig and she always had like perfume stains on all her dresses. And she told her kids, you know, when we might not have any money, but when you leave this house, you're rich. And she would always make sure that her kids, you know, she made dresses for her kids that were like immaculate. And it just really gave me this feeling of, you know, I never bought into the jeans and t-shirts and Converse looks because 
all the things that I've been through and like, you know, growing up without having any money, me being able to present myself to the world was so healing for me. And it's just become a way that I live my life. I think every single day that we're alive on this planet is a gift. And I like to show up for that gift by, yeah, taking my time to get ready. And it's not for this, you know, performance. It's not for validation. It's for my spirit. It's for leaving the house and feeling like, yeah, I'm presenting myself to this new day. Like what a gift it is to be here. So I think there's a lot of that ancestral energy as well. Mm. It's interesting that you feel that it raises your spirits slightly because there's often by people who don't like dressing up this assertion that it is a purely superficial endeavor and I like you also take great joy and the connection with myself is fostered better when I take a moment to put my makeup on and to get myself ready and I always used to say it's like going on show but it's you know that's not to say that I gear myself up and listen to a Judy Garland song but it's just the sense of wanting to go I'm ready to go now. I've done what I want to do to feel the way I want to feel and look the way I want to look. And there's that connection is a hugely important thing to me as well. Yeah. And I think it feels like, you know, time and consideration. So it's like, if I'm brushing, can I do my face in five minutes? Of course I can. If I'm going to go for a walk in the park, I just throw on, you know, some leggings and a t-shirt. Sure. Of course I will. But for me, I think it really is about this time and consideration for self and that time you pour into yourself. So if I have to wake up an hour early, it's for me. And I think it does something, you know, when you leave the house, I do think it invites people to see that they're also worth taking that time. And I've had so many, you know, messages and people in the street who are like, there was sometimes people say to me, where are you going? Like, are you going somewhere? And I'm like, no, I'm just going to Oxford Street or something. And um, it's funny because I think there is this, it's almost like one of my friends always said that her, the worst thing she could be called is being overdressed. And for me, it's like the biggest compliment. I don't think there's anything any such thing as being overdressed. I think as long as you're comfortable, that's the thing. If you're comfortable in what you're wearing, great. If you're, I want to say I felt overdressed at times when I've been wearing something that feels like it doesn't fit me quite right. Mm -hmm. It's a bit wrong. And then I feel like I I don't feel good about myself. Um, Does this extend to things like perfume, bath oils? Are you someone who likes that sensorial element to beauty as well? Yeah, I probably think my favorite category in beauty outside of obviously eyelashes is perfume. So I have a huge collection of them. And it's not only for the scent, but there's almost like this archetypal energy when I step in front of my perfume tray. That's like, how am I feeling today? So I don't pick um, my scents based on notes. I pick them based on how they make me feel. So before I leave the house every day, I'm like, how do I feel now? And how would I like to feel? So if, you know, depending on what I'm wearing or have done my hair and makeup, like for example, today, I'm wearing like a, a shorter dress than I would normally wear. And that's, you know, it's a big deal for me because I had such resistance to show my legs most of my life. And so today's a big day. So I feel proud that I'm wearing the dress and to elicit a greater sense of confidence, I'll then pick a sense that will incite that for me. So like I might do something like a bit deeper or darker, like Penhaligon's Cairo, for example, which I'm obsessed with. So I think there is, you know, this subtle shift in how I see beauty as one that can incite or create feeling versus always, you know, the scent or the look of a product is about the feeling that it brings up in me. I'm exactly the same. When I um, write about perfume, I always write about the emotional perspective. And last night mm-hmm. I got in from a very long shoot and it had been two long days. And I went to my perfume selection and I just thought, I want to feel 
as clean and fresh as possible. Erin Rose de Grasse, which is like a green rose, makes me feel like I've been bathed in clean petals and like I just feel glorious. And it's it just does something to my emotions, that particular one. And um, sometimes I need it. I use it quite discriminately, though, so I'm not overusing it. I want to really call on it when I need its power, as it were. I think actually one of my favourite moments in my beauty career is when we did a launch together for, I can't remember what it was, it was a new perfume brand. And I remember going around the room and we were all smelling these perfumes and we were almost like creating these like stories around them. And I remember like how much joy you and I got from just creating this life behind the scent. And then first the room was like, are they okay? <laughs> like we had the most like yeah. rich character development in these sets. And I remember we spoke afterwards and we were both saying, you know, this is why we do this work. Um, it's a storytelling aspect. It's about feeling and emotion and using our senses to create something. Um, so something I'm obsessed with right now is, you know, we link sense so much to memory. Mm-hmm. But I'm really interested in what now smells like and how we can use scent to bring us into the present moment versus go into the past interesting okay and what would do you mean essential oils or do you mean a perfume that you've bought I think anything I think it's just you know whether it's perfume essential just like something we smell around us I think it's it's such a powerful device to smell something but god I'm here now and to lose sense of time and to just pay attention to what's in front of us and I think scent is really interesting in doing that so yeah I'm trying to work out you know if I work like a perfume brand or something we just really try to encapsulate what now smells like they're used to rooting scent in memory and you know seaside walks and past lovers and crisp white shirts so it's like yeah what does what does now smell like it's funny you say all of those things that you just mentioned seaside fresh shirts mm-hmm. and past lovers I recently wrote something um on the smells that connect to your favorite memories and I asked people on Instagram like what are your absolute favorite smells not perfumes but just smells and those three things came up again and again and again and again and I feel like we all crave this kind of connection it's a connection with like nature and feelings and you know things around us that root us into something that's real and I think that that's actually something that you're doing a lot of work in in all aspects for you it's it's connection 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 really yeah 100% and I think that connection is tiered so it's connection to self connection to others and connection to you know this world that we live in so even with scent right you know our favorite scents are tied to one of the three so I have a memory it's like glossier you is you know us it smells like us or you know the scents that attach us to people in our lives and then the sense that attach us to this planet that we call home so yeah I'm very very fascinated by this idea of connection and I guess also you know the word that comes up a lot for me is remembering so when I speak about spirituality and people assume that it's based in you know astrology and tarot meditation all these things you can do for me it's just like this really beautiful deep remembering of who we are of who we all are and where we are Um, and that's simply what is to me and it's not you know remembering not as this memory of who we were but remembering who we are before we had to choose who we thought we had to be yeah you talk about that and take it in as well and like how you can just foster a relationship with yourself and your spirituality and that doesn't need props can involve props but it doesn't need them right yeah i think that's a really nice way to look at it as well if you said to someone spirituality someone who had no 
vested interest in it and just sort of, you know, got on with their life and hadn't really considered that side of life. I think very often the standard things that would come up, as you said, would be tarot, astrology, um, things that Gwyneth Paltrow does, expensive things that maybe give you, you know, some small moment of pleasure, but really don't do anything for you. Um, I actually wanted to ask you quite um, a lot about spirituality in general. What would be your dictionary definition if you had to have one? Spirituality for me is like it has to be rooted in human experience. So I'm very against the idea of bypassing our lives to almost like seek or search for bliss or enlightenment. So I don't believe spirituality, you know, and no shade, but I don't believe spirituality looks like, you know, the retreats and the mountains and moving to Bali. I think you have to be triggered. I think you have to be, you know, it has to involve watching TV and scrolling on Instagram because, you know, when we look at spiritual teachers from the past, they weren't dealing with all the stress that we had right now. So of course, it's easy to advocate for a life of solitude, a life of introspection. But for me, that doesn't make any sense because we have to deal with what we have right now. So I speak a lot in the book too about, you know, it's like the paleo diet. We're always, we're so convinced that the secret to change is rooted in what we did in the past. I'm like, we don't live there anymore. So our ancestors could happily eat paleo diets, but we have McDonald's and we have donuts to try and resist, right? Or to, you know, to, to really heavily consume. So for me, it has to be rooted in being here and using life to teach us and how to move forward. So that's the first part of the definition. Um, the second part is, yes, using practices to connect to something that you might believe in. And I use those words very loosely. So anything that you believe in can be anything. So if all you believe in is yourself, connect to that. If you do believe in something called the universe or spirit or God or anything, connect to that. So I have, I really don't care what people believe in. I think it is just this sense of there has to be surely something else here. And we spoke a bit about before and um, we jumped on about science, right? And I think we are obsessed with fact and proof. And for me, belief is in the absence of that, but we just know. So it's like, we all know the moon exists scientifically. People have been there. We can see it. But when the moon isn't in the sky, because, you know, the, the, when it's like, you know, different phases of the moon, we can't see it. We still believe it's there. And this, we still feel sometimes a connection to the moon when we can't see the moon in the sky. There's so many things that we believe in that we can't see. It's like the concept of time. When the clocks go back and we just all say, sure, it's now 6 p.m. I'm like, is that not the biggest proof that we just believe in things that we, we don't have any concept of? I have a big issue with time at the moment because I listened to um, You're Dead to Me, the episode on time. And they basically said, oh, at some point in history, someone made up the time that we live in and the constructs we live in. And I think it was the French who challenged it and said, actually, let's do a 10-day week with a four-day weekend. And everyone sort of went, no. And suddenly I feel outraged that I've been held captive by this construct that I never came up with and I started to really rebel against it and go to bed when I want to go to bed and get up when I want to get up and you know totally there's no scientific reason why we have time and why we've created the clock that we have so you know this I do like to push back on this idea that we need proof to believe in something so you know whether it's for you that you just you like the sun so you just believe the sun has powers and like great if that gives you some sense of comfort then like it's nobody's right to question that. There's things that I do, like, you know, with meditation, which has been scientifically researched and backed, and I will always advocate for that. But I've never been into this idea that I have to prove this work. It's almost like 
it's okay to not. It's okay just to believe in something that's helped and changed your life. I always think this about stories, good novels, stories in great novels. Um, Reading good novels has been some of my greatest joy in my life. Probably one of the things that's given me the most um, vigor in my soul. But is there proof of what they do? Is you know, we we all tell stories. Stories are in whatever form, but they're just this magic that we all love and believe in, but we don't know why. And I think there are so many examples of that. Once you start looking at the things that bring us the most joy love, you know, connection with other people. It's very hard to say, oh, I met that person who was technically on paper, not really someone who I'd get on with. And yet there they are. And I adore them. And I think there are so many things like that. So I completely, completely believe that you're just advocating for something that's going to make people happier and make people feel more rooted in a connection with themselves and more comfortable. 100%. And I think at the same time, I think, you know, the way that I see spirituality is that it should contain all things. So I found it really hard, you know, during the early days of COVID where my industry was very divided um, with the vaccine, for example. And I was very frustrated with that because it almost became this thing, well, if you are spiritual, then you wouldn't get it. And for me, there's no rules to be spiritual. So whether you get a vaccine or not it has no bearing on what your belief system is. So I do believe in this approach that is inclusive for everyone. So if you, and then, you know, I think because of my autoimmune, like I'm fully pumped with all kinds of things and I'm fully pumped because I trust in what I'm pumped with. And I think that's what faith is. So my belief system allows me to have the faith that like, yeah, sure, might have some side effects at some point with something I've taken. But fundamentally, if I have faith that was the right decision, is that not what's most important? So I think it is, you know, science and spirituality can coexist very beautifully, even more so as a practitioner, if whatever I'm doing, if it's a spiritual-based practice, then no, do I need to back up with science? Of course not. But if there is something that I do, for example, like meditation, and I do trauma-sensitive meditation, then yes, I will make sure that I'm qualified enough to be able to back up that research because my clients' lives depend on that. Can I ask you some specific questions? Mm -hmm. So if I were to come to you with imposter syndrome, terrible imposter syndrome, what would your response to that be? I think with imposter syndrome is such an interesting one because it is rooted in that belief that we don't deserve something, that we haven't worked hard enough. So I would speak to you about enoughness and what does enoughness mean to you? And maybe that you don't have to do anything to deserve being here because you're here. And there's this really beautiful book that I love and making put in the notes, I can't remember the exact name, but it's called The Making of You. And it's about the science of just being in the womb and all of the crazy things that happen up from conception up to birth. The likeliness of you being here is absolutely ridiculous. And it's only, you know, when you went to school or when you had your first job that you started to believe that maybe, ugh. I have to do things to prove my worth in being here. But after you've literally fought, all of your ancestors have survived through the most atrocious things in society. Why would you think you don't deserve to be here? So I really challenge this idea of imposter syndrome with, even if you had a really awful day at work, even if you had to Google your entire job description to do your job, you're unshowered, you've not washed your hair, you've only watched Real Housewives all day, you still deserve to be here. 
And I think it's only productivity and hustle culture that convinces us that we that we don't. So my almost like bare minimum for human enoughness is simply because you exist on this planet. Does that count for comparison as well? I think comparisons, you know, it gets worse and worse, you know, the more that we almost connect to each other, right? So while we can advocate for connection, the more connection we have, if that connection is not actually about, you know, meeting each other and seeing each other, then of course it's going to end up with comparison. And I think it still, you know, touches on that same idea of being enough because we only often compare when we feel like somebody has more than us or we are not as good as them. So I think it is knowing that in our own unique individual ways, we are enough, we have enough, we're very little. And also, you know, the things that we see online, you know, we live in a very performative driven society. So the things that we see are, are highlight reels. We're not seeing the behind the scenes of the things that someone has or how they got them. So I often encourage people to look at how they feel in their life instead of the things that they have or they have not accumulated. You think about relationships. Um, a lot of my um, previous clients, or even myself, I would look at people, I would, I would love a couple's hashtag on Instagram. And I would sit there in that very old school rom-com way of like a tub of ice cream, pajamas, a spot cream on my face being like, this is never going to happen to me. Um, and I would just watch these pictures of just like complete despair. And I had to really check myself and say, because obviously those couples would then have, you know, these epic breakup announcements two weeks later. And I'm like, I'm not in their relationship. So whatever I'm seeing I don't know how they feel in that life. So if I focus on how I feel in mine, I can't compare that feeling to a 2D image and a snapshot of the highlights of someone's day. What about sadness? I would ask you to be in it. And we often need permission to do that um, because we're always convinced that we need to work out the quickest route to exit from sadness. And my advice is just to be in it for however long it takes. And the only way you can convince yourself to be sad is if you know that A, you're going to get out of it and B, you have someone to hold your hand through it. So whether that held hand is through mental health support, a therapist or a practitioner, through a trusted friend or a loved one, or even just someone on you know your Instagram captions or DMs, is trusting that you have resources available to help you through that sadness. And even if we end up doing it by ourselves, you know, just that comfort of knowing if this gets to a point that I can't deal with this by myself anymore... There's a whole world of people here who can help me. My favorite Ram Dass quote is, we're just here to walk each other home. And I always remember that in moments when I'm just really desperately sad. Like, I'm not here to do this by myself. It's not a challenge for me to just be sad by myself. So to feel it, and when we have felt it, it's then it transforms into something else. It transforms into a beautiful teaching, a piece of wisdom, an aha moment, or just contentment and it will always transform into something if we allow ourselves to be in it how do you advise people reframe their relationships if they've fallen into playing roles so either romantic or with your family where you revert to that person you were or a person a trope how do you reframe that so i think i always like this idea of breaking the rules and that's breaking the rules of people's expectations for you. So we tend to navigate relationships from this lens of I should or I could or I think I have to. And they're just rules and they're often not our rules. So I always believe in this idea of, you know, love that is condition free. There was something I watched in 90 Day Fiance 
where um, these parents were really upset that um, their son had married somebody who was quite a lot older than him and they disowned him. And it's interesting because almost like, well, can love ever truly be love if we attach conditions to that love? So when we break the rules from that and we say, but actually, this is my choice to make. I have to be myself because if I'm not myself in this relationship, then who is loving me? We can always love the shiny, beautiful versions of someone. We can always love the version of somebody who says yes all the time. But often people might not like it when you're being yourself. And actually, that's the greatest blessing. I think we are so tethered and attached to keeping, holding on to people. But there's a whole sea of people who will love you for being your disruptive, messy, beautiful, obnoxious self. And they're your people. And I'm always like, just be difficult. Um, and not. I think, you know, it's a phrase that women have had to struggle with for such a long time. We've always been called difficult, but just simply being authentic and in our worth. So I'm like, be a difficult woman and say no and say, actually, I have some more questions about that. Or no, I'm not really feeling that. Or this is how I really feel. Because it's only when you are difficult and people see that and love it that you can find your people. And what about when people present to you this notion of what can I do to get this thing that will make me happy? I need to have this car, this relationship, a baby, whatever it is, a candle, and then I will be happy. You'll be there when the thing arrives and you'll still have to deal with the version of you that's there. So it's almost like, you know, if you want the candle to make you feel better, you'll just be sad lighting the candle. Um, if you think that moving to Switzerland will be your absolute savior, you'll still be sad when you get there. So I think it's almost like moving away from this idea of these things can make us feel or be something and sit with well, what within me wants my attention. So when we have that, you know, I call it like the inner itch and it's like that very annoying, like almost middle of the back scratch that says, yeah, something's not okay. And we're convinced the only way to itch that scratch is to go and do or buy or create something. And we're then very surprised that when we've done that, the feeling's still there. And in that moment, we're feeling that itch. We just need to ask ourselves, what's actually going on? Am I sad? Because if I'm sad, then maybe the candle's not going to fix that. If we say, you know, actually I'm lonely, maybe, you know, the guy doing like on your hinge is not going to fix your loneliness for you. But if we really investigate and inquire as to what we're actually feeling within, we can then work with that. So in lockdown, I was very adamant that I would feel some sense of peace at least once a week. And I didn't attach that peace to anything because there was nothing to attach it to. So all the things I would normally get peace by, or, you know, if I was going to get a massage or seeing friends, I couldn't do. So I had to really, you know, rely on myself to create this feeling of peace. And I was surprised that even in one of the worst moments in our collective history, I managed to find peace. I wasn't attaching it to anything outside of me. So I was looking for peace, peace by, you know, going for a walk. I was looking for peace by, like, you know, putting a hand on my heart for two seconds and breathing. And when we realize that we're resourced enough to do that without anything, waiting for that thing to transform us because it never can. Do you know, oddly, where I find a lot of peace, as you were saying that, I was just thinking, I find a lot of joy in cleaning my house. Mm. I really love it. There's something about the process of getting rid of dirt and putting things out mm -hmm. that when it's lovely, 
Exactly. I treat life as a moving meditation. Sometimes the most profound meditations are not on, you know, a yoga mat or listening to an app. So if you find, you know, there is something really healing in washing up, then wash up and really pay attention to that. If you find something really healing in the motion of the train and the central line, then lean into that, put a soundtrack on it. So it's like, you know, let life be the meditation versus looking for it only in, you know, solitude. You earlier said something about main character energy. And actually, I have to say, my main character would be some sort of tragic person that no one wanted to emulate. But I think, (laughs) I think I have my most main character energy. Yeah, listening to music, mopping is when I'm like, oh, I'm feeling myself and I just feel really great. Strange. I would always listen to film scores when I'm just going about my day. Yes. And it is like my favorite thing in life. Like I'm listening to this like profound soundtrack and just being like, yeah, this is all happening for me. And um, that's like when you're in like an Uber or something, it's like watching life go by or listening to like Max Richter or something. And there is just like something very delicious about mundane things being transformed just because you're listening to something around it. When I left Marie Claire, when you leave a magazine, they tend to give you a cover and they've made it with your photo on it and they have some sort of funny headlines about what you're like. And one of mine was listens to the Superman soundtrack on the way to a challenging day at work. And every single time I'd have to hear that. Dun, 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 dun. It, just, it just set me up to think, yeah, that's my energy today. I'm going to have to, I know I'm going to have to move mountains. I need Superman in my head. I love that. And I think, you know, that's when I think about practices and I think about making those practices, like spiritual practices, doable and achievable for people. It's exactly that. Um, you know, where we have such busy lives and, while I do think, you know, rest and reflection and pausing are absolutely vital, a pause can be 20 seconds long. It doesn't have to be, you know, an hour long of something to be meaningful. So the point is there is, you know, this almost like revolutionary disruptive act in pausing. And it doesn't have to be long because we have a modern life to contend with. Before I ask you the questions I ask all my guests, and by the way, we are also then going to do an exercise together. I wanted to ask you, do you feel that there are barriers then to spirituality in the way that people talk about sort of conflicting religious beliefs, poverty, you know, sometimes race, like the things that come into the conversation around, I want to say spirituality products. Do you think any of those are actually a barrier to spirituality in the way that you see it? Yeah. So I think one of the first ones is for sure, I think there's a lot of privilege in spirituality and that can that extends to both you know financial positions extends to class extends to gender and extends to race um so this space is populated by lots of white women who have lots of disposable income and that's not a bad thing it's a it's, it's helpful when anyone does this work so i'm never an advocate for only certain people using it but i think it's important to realize that it has to be inclusive for every single person who lives on this planet so when i'm thinking of you know a meditation class or a yoga class or even just like a wellness shop i want to see every single version of human being in there because this work is for human beings um so i think it's important to be able to make it accessible in all of those intersections but not only that but also just in how we understand those concepts so when we speak about things like higher consciousness and when we speak about things like um you know, the place of the planet shift in and all these like weird spiritual terms, like no one understands what that means. 
So we have, or like the ego, we speak about so many of these complex things. And I think what we really need to do in these spaces is to bridge the gap. So language is incredibly, incredibly important for me in the work that I do, because I don't want to just hear myself speak to say like lovely flowery things. It needs to make sense to the person who is, has never, ever even thought to do this work. So I think the ways that we can just really make this applicable for every single version of human who lives here is the only way that I believe that this work can change people's lives. All right, let me ask you the questions I ask all of my guests. First one being, what to your mind has been your greatest triumph, career or personal? My personal proudest moment is probably the feeling that I have had probably the first time in my life in the last six months. And that is a feeling of complete wholeness and contentment by just being myself. And yes, did I write a book, you know, nearly a year ago? Yes, have I been doing this work for five years? Sure. But there's, I've said, you know, openly, there's no before and after picture to this. So we're always going into things. And I think I always believe that I would feel the best when I had something. So like if I had a book, if I have a certain bank account, if I have a partner. And in the last six months, I just feel fucking amazing. And I don't have, you know, all these things, I just have me. And the feeling that I wake up every single day is one of pride and accomplishment and gratitude. And you can't put, you know, a price tag or a person on that. So actually like my proudest thing is not all the things I've done, but it's who I am. What one piece of advice would you give a younger self and which age? I think when I was, yeah, probably about eight, I would say to myself, it's okay to be soft. And I think we're used to that word strong. And I think there's a beautiful amount of strength in being soft. And softness is not only the compassion and kindness we give to ourselves when life is very difficult, but it's also saying, I don't have to be strong today. And maybe the strongest act I can do is just to say, I'm not doing okay. I need some help. I want someone to hold my hand. So yeah, I would ask myself to remember to be soft. Name three people dead or alive who you'd have at your ideal dinner party. Okay, so my first one would be Sarah Jessica Parker, obviously, because (laughs) I'm obsessed with her. Um, And we would just talk about every single episode of Sex and City from episode one to, um, and just like that. I have a lot of things to ask her. And I've spoken to her before, but there's never enough SJP that one person can get. Before you go on to your next guest, can I ask you, what do you think of And Just Like That? So the way that I approach Sex and the City is when you're a diehard fan, you take what you get, right? I'm very happy to be invited. So for me, it was like a huge reunion party. Like what have my friends been up to mm-hmm. in the last like 10 years? I haven't seen them. So irrespective of how messy I thought the show was or in the ways I didn't think it worked very well, and even worse news that Aiden might be making a reappearance in the next season. I was just very excited that my friends were back on TV. Um, so for that reason alone, I was just like, it's great to have my friends back. Mm-hmm. Are you a big fan then versus Aiden? I mean, I can't, I just don't understand Aiden. I don't, I feel like he gives us very toxic vibes. And I feel like he's an anxious attachment style, which is not a bad thing. But I feel like if those traits manifested in a woman, we would have an issue with that. We would quickly label those traits as clingy or anxious. And with him, it's like, he's so sweet. I'm like, he's not sweet. He slapped a cigarette patch on her arm. And I have not forgotten that. I couldn't agree more. I've never, ever thought Aiden really Mm -hmm. loved her at all. I think he just loved this idea of a woman he could have. And he fancied her. Whereas I think Big actually loved Carrie and all of her messiness and who she was. Mm -hmm. He was, you know, he had his own flaws. So, yeah, 
personally. Yeah, it's um, like that thing we spoke about with, you know, breaking the rules and authenticity. Mm. So Carrie only felt lovable when she was performing who she thought Aiden would love. Yeah. So she was never allowing herself to be that very scatty, messy, running around sh- shouting taxis in New York version of herself when she was with him because he said to her very loudly, I don't like the cigarette messy smoking you. Mm-hmm. So you have to not be her for me to love you. So I think it was one that was like consumed with conditions. And I think when she chose big, she was almost saying to herself, well, I don't, I only can be this person. Yeah. So yeah. Not Aiden fan. <laughs> with you. Okay. Second guest. Um, my second guest would be Alelia Walker. Um, so she was Madam C.J. Walker's um, daughter, who was one of those, um, one of the revolutionary hair pioneers. And she had these little salons during the Harlem Renaissance, where she would have, you know, the brightest minds during that time who just come to her apartment and have really rich, vivid conversations. I just want to be there for the chat. I would love to know what they were talking about. I'm also like very fascinated by the idea of like salons and this really beautiful space for like rich cultural dialogue and conversation and meeting of minds. And I would love for there to be more of those um, now. My final guest might be Norman Parkinson, one of my very favorite fashion photographers. I just would love to hear his process. I find his work breathtaking. So I think just for that, um, yeah, that insight into his process and his practice would be so incredible for my dissertation in my BA I did my topic on World War II and fashion and beauty during World War II as being one of like duty so I went into like archives and I looked through all the archive photography and also went to like the war museum and it was just like this language around it was women's role in the war to be well dressed um and to perform as their version of being um you know, on the front line. Mm-hmm. So I just would love to know, you know, just some of those stories about, you know, the, the women behind the photography that he, he did. I also feel like all of those guests would just bring the conversation. It would just be a really, really good mix. Yeah, I just want to like sit back and just like soak it all up. Yeah. Would you cook? I would 100% cook. And I feel like I would probably do elevated picky bits. Because the conversation is going to be so rich that I feel like we, we can't even afford to like waste time on consuming. <laughs> so just like lots of like chunks of like bread and amazing olive oil and baba ganoush and just beautiful little dips and bits and pieces and olives. Because, yeah, there's, there's no time to be eating when SJP's in the room. There's a bit in Dodie Smith's I Capture the Castle that I love where she talks about how strange it is that we come together to eat. And she says, mm. it's so weird that food goes in and words come out and we expect that this isn't going to be a difficult thing. And I always yeah. think of that when someone has like a dinner party and serves you food that you have to focus to eat. Yeah. Like I always go on um, these lovely like solo dates and I take myself out to really nice restaurants and it's the only time I can like really savor and meditate on my food. And I've realized that so much of like the best food I've eaten in company doesn't even compare to the food I've eaten by myself because I've just been with the food. I've not had to like, you know, almost like stop between bites to have conversation. So I selfishly sometimes pick the food I really, really want to eat when I'm eating it by myself. Yeah, I would do exactly the same. I should start doing that actually, because when I'm around people, I wolf it down and then think, I don't really know what I just ate, that I was in a hurry. Absolutely. You have very kindly agreed to do a short exercise in freeing self from doubt, finding inner voice. So I wondered if we could start that now. Yes. Um, so yeah, this is 
for absolutely everyone. Just go along with it and be be open. So we're just gonna like do a little meditation slash reflection and then I will ask a few questions people can like write down in their journals. Um, so yeah, everyone listening, you can move into a nice seated position. And in terms of posture and position, you can just make sure that your feet are planted on the ground. And it's up to you if you want to close your eyes. So if that feels safe and comfortable, then you can absolutely do that. And if not, you can just gaze somewhere at a spot in front of you. And before you even try to manage any thoughts that are coming in or push yourself to slow down, Just notice what faults are on loop in your head right now. If you're holding on to anything from the moments before you just sat down to take a moment. And if your eyes are closed, are you seeing anything? And without judgment, how does it feel to just be sitting here? Being still. Are you rushing to be done? Are you wondering what's going to happen next? Don't judge that. Just be curious. Just see how the temperature of your body feels. And as you sit with all of that stuff, the noise, the thoughts, if your body's doing anything, just let all of that go for a minute. Even if you have an email to check or something to do, it will still be here in about eight minutes. So you can just shift your focus now to your breath. And for a moment, don't try to change it or force it into something. But almost act as if you've never breathed before and just notice it. See if you can pinpoint where your breath is in your body. Is it in your chest or your belly? Does it feel soothing? Or is there any resistance? Does it work a little bit more of our breath now? If your breath isn't feeling good to you today, then you can just place a hand on your heart. If you do want to breathe along with me, Then on your next breath in, just want you to repeat the word in to yourself, in your mind. And as you breathe out, I want you to repeat the word out to yourself. So taking a long deep breath in, repeating the word in, and breathing out, repeating the word out. You can just do this by yourself for a few more moments. 
in as you breathe in and out as you breathe out. In as you breathe in, out as you breathe out. And if any thoughts come in or if you lose focus, then just simply shift back to your breath and repeating those words. Breathing in, repeating the word in, and breathing out, repeating the word out. You can just start to let these words slip away and return to any breathing pattern that feels good. And now that you're feeling a little bit more settled, a little bit more in the present moment, just want you to bring a smile to your lips. And don't worry about what you look like. Just focus on that feeling, that sensation, the instant joy that comes to your face as you smile. I want you to use this smile to imagine that you're in your most favorite, safest and joyful place in the entire world. It might be a place in nature, your room, wherever it is, just take yourself there. Just notice how this place makes you feel and how you move or walk through this space. Just notice what you can see or hear or smell. As you see your most authentic, truest version of you in your favorite place.
And I want you just to start to zoom out of this scene. So zoom out and almost see yourself watching yourself here, moving around and interacting. Almost stepping out of your body, stepping out of everything. Stepping out of who you thought you had to be, where you think you have to go. Just stepping out of what you think is next for you, or who you want to be. Just zooming out from all the questions, the doubts, the uncertainty, the swirling thoughts. And just feel yourself here in this moment almost weightless. Like you're floating. The only thing happening is you breathing. And in this moment, you don't have to do or be anything. And this is who you are. Underneath it all, underneath the labels, just you being you existing. So just rest into that for a few more moments. And you can use this time to ask yourself something or whisper something sweet to yourself. If you've been looking for guidance, there's something worrying you. Just use this time to connect to it. Maybe this might be the only time you really have to yourself today. So just ask yourself what you need. Or invite in any answers that might reveal themselves to you in the next days or weeks or months. And just take another deep breath in through your nose. And a long, deep sigh out of your mouth. And as you slowly start to drop back into your body, just gently scan from your head down to your toes. Just noticing if there's any sensations or feelings that are coming up for you. All the way from the strands of hair that might be tickling your neck, the very soles of your feet, 
Seeing how you feel now. Just feel yourself making contact with whichever surface you're on. Start to listen in to any surrounding noises again. Noticing if you can smell anything new now. And before we shift out of this practice, just take another deep breath in. And the longest exhale you've taken so far today. And just give yourself a little silent thank you for gifting yourself this brief time. And you can blink open your eyes whenever you're ready. How did that feel for you? Yeah, it was somewhere... I've, I, I feel in a very different space mm. now. It was somewhere between the breathing, the in, 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 out, 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 did something intense to me. And it made me feel very settled. Mm, yeah, there's something, um, it's one of my favorite meditations to share with people who don't meditate because what we're looking for in meditation practice like is an anchor to focus on. I think the misconception is I must stop thinking. I'm like, babe, you're a human being. You're not going to stop thinking probably in this lifetime. And that's not the goal. The goal is to just, when we do think is to shift it back to something else. So sometimes the breath can not only be, you know, activating for people, because sometimes, you know, we, we have that tendency to hyperventilate if we really focus on it or we get a bit anxious. Um, so having both breath and words um, is really powerful together to kind of really bring you here. And if you, even if, you know, people listening, you take out all the other stuff I said and you just simply do the in and out for 30 seconds on the toilet when your kids are really annoying you like you'll have a 20 seconds like oh my god I can now handle the rest of my day there's also nice when you said pan out a little bit mm. I felt very much like my spirit was sort of soaring and mm-hmm. and the sense of freedom from my physical self yeah, thank you. I will share with some with everyone um, a couple of questions that they can ask based on that practice. But mm-hmm. that feeling of the panning out is when you ask yourself, you know, who am I or how can I be my authentic self? That's kind of it. So we can over-intellectualize it and find questions and answers for it. But it's simply that feeling that you just experienced. It's you without having to be or do anything without having to perform or be like, oh my God, what am I thinking right now? It's just you just existing. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm going to just like read out a couple of questions that people can, you know, write down in their notebooks and, you know, reflect on, you know, you can write mm-hmm. them out or you can, you can think about them. So the first question is, you know, what beliefs, fears, or doubts do I have that have had an impact on who I think I should be? So when we're thinking about the beliefs and fears that we have, so often they really impact on our ability to be authentic, um, our ability to find and trust that inner voice. So for example, if you have a belief that you are not lovable, then in relationships, you will never be your authentic self because you believe that your authentic self will be somebody who will be abandoned or rejected, right? So we can see a very clear example of that. 
Um, so write down in your journals or your notebook or your phone, you know, yeah, what beliefs are you carrying and how can you see the very tangible examples of how they've affected how you show up? The next question is what have other people in your life told you that's had an impact on who you think you should be? And that can be quite a hard one to look at because, you know, we remember everything. So it's funny because today when I just said to you that I'm wearing this like shorter dress, it's because when I was like 14, someone said to me that I have like thunder thighs. And I remember that very vividly. I can't remember what I ate for lunch that day when I was 14, but I will never forget that statement or the times when people have said that, you know, I've gained weight or things like that. And because of that, the impact I've had on my life is that I only wear midi to maxi dresses. And while I love the aesthetic, you know, there's been times I'm like, oh God, I would love to wear at shorter length. So just like pan back to your life and think about, you know, are there any really bold statements that people have made? And you don't have to kind of, you know, um, rationalize the importance of them. So it might be something that may feel meaningless to anyone else, but for you, it was a really huge turning point. And then just examine how that's impacted you. Then the next question is, what has the world or society told you about who you should be? And that can be a very powerful one. It depends on the intersections, you know, for people who are women, then you might have narratives around how you should look in society or the roles you should play. If you are a person of color, then that may also have impacted who you think you should be here or the kind of work you have, the personality that you should have, even the foods you should like. Um, if you are non-binary or if you're a trans person, then really think about what narratives you hear from the world, even about gender that you've had to perform for your life. So just really think about, you know, what has the world told you about who you should be? And the final question, which is my favorite one, is writing out if you weren't afraid of letting people down, if you weren't afraid of being your authentic self, then what would you do? Who would the world see? How would you show up? And in that question, we're really looking at if we weren't afraid of being laughed at or abandoned or rejected or confusing people, then what would you do? Would you change your work? Would you change how you dress? Would you change the boundaries you have with people? And there's something incredibly freeing about that question because it almost shows us the life we're not living in service of other voices that are not our own. I have loved chatting to you. I could chat to you all day like everything um thank you so much for making time to come on and talk to us all today um i feel so profoundly relaxed after that that i don't think i've got any more um interesting words so i'm going to let you go i want to go and lie down i feel really like i feel really chilled thank you so much giselle thank you so much I hope you enjoyed that and sorry if my voice is interrupting your meditative state. I definitely was floating off towards the end of that guided meditation with Giselle, so I hope you found that as relaxing as I did. I mentioned at the beginning that I'd been using the Amli Digital Detox Silver Rich Face Mist, that's a long name but it's it's a really beautiful product, before recording with Giselle and I just wanted to acquaint you with some more of the lifestyle Amli products I've been enjoying as part of my daily ritual. So in the evening, when I get into bed, I use a beauty sleep face mist. I sort of spritz it into the air and let it fall on me like a gentle mist. It's it's a really lovely, lovely feeling. That's probably the thing that best signals to me that it's time to go to sleep and to put down my phone, which I have to do to mist it. So it's very helpful in that regard too. 
After that, I take a little bit of the sleep tight balm and rub it onto my chest to hydrate, which is sometimes an area I forget to put my skincare on, which I know is naughty. And that's when my body knows it's really time to chill. Finally, and the product that I'm really excited to tell you about is the Purify Pure Essential Oil Blend, which I'm using kind of as part of my mission to avoid colds and also because I find it's a really busy time of year and I sometimes just need a moment to relax. So I pop a little bit on a tissue, sometimes I put a tiny bit on hand cream and just breathe it in. And so far, so good. I haven't had a cold and I'm feeling quite sane really for this time of year. If you'd like to try any of those or any of the rest of the range, visit amlybotanicals.co.uk and use the code BEAUTY22 for 22% off your first order. Thanks for listening to the end of the podcast. There'll be another episode of Beautiful Lives Along in a Week where I'll be speaking to Alicia Silverstone. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 